continuing our sermon series in the Gospel of Jesus according to Mark. Today we've come to part 10 entitled, Who Needs a Doctor? I invite you to bow with me once more. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword. We thank you that by your spirit, you have a word for us today through it. So we ask that you would speak to our hearts, give us ears to hear, hearts to receive, and we pray that you would bless each one of us to obey exactly what you would have for us today. Pray that you would speak through me, your servant. May the words be yours, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a humorous story told of a wife who was out with her husband one day playing a round of golf. Now, they happened to make it to about the ninth green when the wife suddenly collapsed on the ground. Doctor, I need a doctor, the woman gasped. So immediately, her husband ran off to find her a doctor. Well, a few minutes later, the man returned and then calmly began to line up his putt for the ninth hole. Well, his wife, looking at him from the ground, asked him what in the world he thought he was doing. The man replied, oh, don't worry, honey. I found a doctor, so I'm just finishing up my putt while we wait for him. But where is the doctor, she demanded to know. Well, the husband calmly drained his putt. Then he proceeded to pull out his driver, walked over to the next tee box, and drove his ball down the 10th fairway before he finally replied, Oh, the doctor's playing back on the sixth hole. Well, the now exasperated woman nearly growled through gritted teeth. Then why isn't he here? Didn't you tell him it's an emergency? Oh, he won't be very much longer, her husband calmly replied. Seeing as it's an emergency, the groups on the seventh and eighth holes have agreed to let the doctor play through. <laughs> now, I hope this isn't a true story, and if you're a golfer, you'll get the uh, play-through analogy. I, I hope this isn't a true story. But it highlights for us the type of urgency that we expect a doctor to have when help is needed, especially when there's an emergency. Now, this is no commentary on the husband either. We'll just leave him out of this story. But now, even if the doctor was shooting the very best round of his life, and, and let's just say he's never been hitting the ball better. Even so, we would still expect him to drop his clubs and come running to her aid ASAP, as this could be a matter of life and death. Now, the spiritual parallel is that just as the collapsed woman needed a physical doctor to come to her aid, so too any person who is poisoned by sin is in urgent need of a spiritual doctor, of spiritual healing. And so, this means that urgency is required. Now, this leads us into our key verse from today's scripture in Mark chapter 2 and verse 17, which says, On hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So I ask again the question, who needs a doctor? This is essentially the question that Jesus is answering in this verse, who is it that needs a doctor? Who is it that needs Jesus, the great physician? Is it those who think that they are righteous or those who know that they are sinners? Now I'm going to let you ponder that question for a while and we'll come back to it a little bit later on. 
Now this morning as we head into today's text in Mark chapter 2, we introduce it with this first slide of Jesus walking alongside the Sea of Galilee. Now to set the scene for this teaching, let's go back to Mark chapter 2 and there we'll read verses 13 and 14. Mark 2, 13 and 14. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Now, last week, we highlighted the fact that everywhere Jesus went, the crowds were gathering and following him. We also established that his home base for ministry was in the home of Simon Peter, located in the fishing town of Capernaum on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. So this setting of Jesus walking alongside the, the shore is something that would have been happening quite often. Now, by this point, Jesus' fame has already spread far and wide. The people are looking for him, and again, the setting is that a large crowd has been seeking Jesus out, and they have found him walking along the seashore. And so as Jesus is walking, he begins to teach them. Now, perhaps he stopped for a time and taught. Then the text seems to indicate that he continues to walk along, perhaps teaching while he is walking. But as Jesus is teaching and walking and the crowds are following and listening, Jesus then sets his sight on a man, a man named Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at his tax collector's booth. Now, we see Levi depicted here in this next slide. Levi is, quite obviously, a tax collector. We know from the other Gospels that Levi also was known by the name Matthew, and there's the Gospel according to Matthew, which bears his name. Now, Matthew, or Levi, as he is called in this text, which is the name we will use for today's sermon, Levi was a tax collector. Now, you say, so what? Big deal. He's a tax collector. How's that any different than any other accountant, banker-type position? Well, it's quite different, actually, especially in that time, because to call him a tax collector in that time was another way of simply saying he was the scum of the earth. The scum of the earth. It's virtually impossible for us today to fully comprehend just how hated and despised and reviled the tax collectors were at this point in Israel's history. Now, the reason for this hatred of tax collectors went back for a long period of time, centuries in fact. For it was some centuries earlier that Israel had been conquered by the Roman Empire. And so they lived under the military occupation of Rome, which of course included the ruthless application of Roman law by force. That's how they kept order in the world, was by the tip of the sword and the threat of its use. And so this of course included heavy taxation in nearly every aspect of Jewish life. The Romans would have taxes for production on the farmer's grain and produce. They would tax the fishermen. They would tax the merchants in the market. They would have an import-export tax. They would have a road tax. They would have a harbor tax and a general income tax on top of it all. And stop me if this is sounding at all familiar for you. <laughs> now, the difference being, of course... That for us, we pay taxes that goes to our government, 
our Canadian government. And the, and the Israelites were not opposed to paying for taxes that actually went to their own government, but this was taxes on top of their local government. These were extra taxes that went to a foreign government that were considered the enemy, their oppressors. And so this added an extra layer of resentment. Now, these tax collection booths that the Romans set up, they would be all over the place and especially along roadways or key intersections where people were forced to pass by. And so they would recruit local Jewish men to be the tax collectors rather than have the Romans have their own tax collectors. They would hire Jews. Now, why would they do that? Well, there's a couple of reasons. The first one being Romans also looked down on tax collectors and considered it a very unsavory profession. Romans didn't want to be tax collectors themselves, so they recruited them. The second reason was very practical and very cunning. You see, the local Jews would know who everyone was and their business. So they would know who to tax and how much and who was hiding things from them. And so the Jews were extra ruthless in extracting taxes from their own people, even more so than foreigners would know how to be. And so for this reason, they recruited local Jewish men. They would pay them very well, of course, and in addition, they would assign to them Roman soldiers for the dual purpose of both protection, which of course they needed, and also for intimidation. Now, because Capernaum was a central point on a main caravan route between east and west, all of the major trade to the region passed through Capernaum. And so, this central point was one where the Romans built a large garrison to house their soldiers. So all of this gave Levi this perfect opportunity to be willing to essentially renounce his his, uh, Jewish allegiance to his nation and to give that over for the sake of greed, that he would become very, very rich as a tax collector for Rome. Now the text indicates that Levi has set up his personal tax collection booth near the lake, likely at a point where people were forced to pass by, including the fishermen, so that he could tax them on the number of fish that they had caught that night. So as a tax collector, Levi would have been viewed by his fellow Jews in the following ways. He would have been first viewed as dishonest. Tax collectors commonly charge people even more than what Rome required, and so they would then pocket the extra for themselves. Furthermore, when a person couldn't afford to pay their taxes, they would then give them so generously a high-interest loan, which would then ensure that the person could never pay off their tax debt and would have to keep paying the tax collector indefinitely. They could charge them a loan with 1,000% interest and just keep compounding it so the person could never be free. Furthermore, Levi would have been viewed from being dishonest as being disqualified. Tax collectors were not allowed to give testimony in court as witnesses because they were disqualified for being untrustworthy. No one trusted their word. Their tithes were not even accepted at the temple. Next, Levi would have been seen as disloyal. Though Jewish, he would have been considered a traitor to his people, working for the hated Romans. He had turned his back on his family, his nation, and his God. Levi would have also been detested. Tax collectors were classed alongside murderers, robbers, and prostitutes, the only difference being they were considered the worst. Sometimes children were even known to go up 
or run past a tax collector's booth and spit on the tax collectors and then run away, all at the encouragement of their parents. Levi also would have been disowned. By extension, Levi's family, and especially his father, who is identified as Alpheus, would have been more than ashamed and bitterly disappointed at having raised a son who became a hated tax collector. So as a result, Alpheus undoubtedly will have disowned him as a son. And he would have bore the shame and the stigma in his community for having a tax collector as a son. Levi finally would have been considered defiled. As someone who worked closely alongside Gentiles on a regular basis, Levi would have been considered spiritually defiled and unclean. As as much of an outcast of Jewish society as that leper that Jesus healed a few sermons back. The one who he reached out to go extra, extra mile to touch him and so defile even himself ceremonially. And so in the same way that that leper was defiled and an outcast from society, so too this tax collector Levi is in every single way. He's barred from entering the synagogue or the temple as a result. So I hope you're beginning to get a little bit more of a a sense, a better understanding of just how much Levi would have been hated, despised, and reviled by those same Jewish people who were following along behind Jesus that day. So now this helps set the scene for us as we see in this next slide. That as Jesus is walking along, he stops in front of Levi's tax booth. Now, while everyone else is at this moment surprised, why is Jesus stopping there? Why is he looking at a tax collector? Everyone else is either looking at Levi with hate-filled glances or they're just trying to ignore him as best they can so that they don't have to end up paying more taxes. But here Jesus goes out of his way to focus in on Levi. And Mark chapter 2 verse 14 says, As he walked along, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. So it begs the question, Jesus saw Levi. What did he see? Now we just put a big list of what everyone else saw, but what did Jesus see when he looked at this man? I want to highlight for you today that Jesus saw a man with potential. Jesus saw a man with potential. Now, consider that the crowds of people were everywhere, and yet for some reason, Jesus locked onto Levi, walks up to him. Everyone's wondering, what words of condemnation and rebuke is the rabbi going to give to this scum? But while we tend to make our judgments based on outer appearances and outer circumstances, clearly Jesus does not. So while no one else could see past the tax collector exterior, Jesus looked past all of that and he saw what was truly in Levi's heart. And while we're not told all the specifics, undoubtedly Jesus saw that deep down Levi was unsatisfied with his money and his power and his position and that he was in fact searching for something that would satisfy his soul. For it should not go unnoticed that even the name Levi is an important point. Levi was a priestly name. The Levites were the tribe of Israel that was designated to serve as the priests for the nation. 
And in that time, names and their meanings were highly significant. People didn't just pick names out of a hat to give to their children. They picked names that had meaning that they hoped the child would fulfill. And so it's likely that Alphaeus gave his son the name Levi with the hope that he would one day grow up to serve God in some special way. And we can well imagine his bitter disappointment that his son instead became a hated tax collector. And yet, though Levi's potential was at this point marred, hidden by sin, Jesus could see past all of that to see Levi's true worth, to see his hidden potential, hidden behind it all, that there was still opportunity for him to, yes, serve God in a very special way indeed. The true story is told that back in 1844, a New Testament scholar visited the monastery at St. Catherine, located on the top of Mount Sinai. While there, he saw some papers, an old scroll stashed away in a basket. And as I detected on this scroll, Greek characters, which turned out upon investigation to be the famous manuscript of the Bible called the Codex Sinaiticus. This Codex Sinaiticus was a copy that dated back to the 4th century. And to the monks there, it was just an old scroll of no value to them, hence why it was thrown away in this basket. But to the scholar who had seen it, it was a priceless discovery that was then used to help clarify and understand further manuscripts. Someone else's junk was in fact someone else's treasure. And so it was with Levi the tax collector. For to his own people he was a traitor to his nation, an outcast of no value. But to Jesus, Levi was so precious that he in fact in this next moment is going to call him and in fact has chosen him to be one of his twelve disciples. And one of the chief eyewitnesses who would go on to record Jesus' life and teachings for the world to read and learn about. In fact, if you take a closer look at these 12 men that Jesus chose, you discover an unlikely group of misfits. They were fishermen and farmers. He had one disciple called Simon the Zealot. A more literal translation would be Simon the Revolutionary. For the Zealots were a group of revolutionaries who were dedicated to the overthrow of Rome, and so they would carry out acts of violence against the Romans whenever possible, including against tax collectors. But now here we see that Jesus calls Levi the tax collector, a traitorous agent of Rome, and then he calls Simon the Zealot to in fact be on the same team following after him. None of these men are who you would expect the Messiah to call. But that's the wonderful thing about Jesus. As many have said before, he doesn't call the qualified. He qualifies the called. And just as certainly as Levi was not even remotely qualified to follow Jesus, neither are we. For just like all of those twelve, we too, like them, are sinners. We too, like them, have fallen short of the glory of God. And yet when Jesus looks at you or I, he sees what no one else can see. For while others may not be able to see past your sins, your failures, your shortcomings, Jesus looks and he can see right to the heart and he sees the full potential of your life and mine to bring glory to God once it has been cleaned, transformed, and yielded in willing service to him. 
So just as Jesus saw Levi's potential, rest assured that Jesus sees your potential as well. And he sees it in full. Now first we see that Jesus saw Levi's potential. Then second we read, Jesus gives Levi a life-altering call. Now there can be no doubt that the very reason Jesus was walking the seaside road that day was in fact specifically to meet Levi, to give him this call. A call that consisted of only two words with no preface and no preamble, just two words that confronted Levi's life head on and flipped it completely upside down. What were those two words? Verse 14. Follow me, Jesus said. Now those two words, follow me, were actually less of an invitation and more of a command. For they were spoken in the present imperative tense, meaning that the call had to be acted upon immediately and they were not open for further negotiations. There was no wiggle room in this call for Levi to counter with, well, give me an hour to think about it and I'll get back to you. Or let me just finish up my shift, close up shop, and I'll be right behind you. In other words, it was a classic take it or leave it, all or nothing, now or never proposition. Now we can only speculate at what had all happened in Levi's life that led up to this moment. There's obviously a backstory here, but Mark doesn't bother giving us the backstory. But there's obviously one here. Had Levi previously lurked in the crowds in Capernaum and listened to Jesus as he had taught? It's likely. Had Levi perhaps personally known of someone that Jesus had healed? Someone perhaps like the leper or the paralytic or even the demon-possessed man? Again, it's possible. We know that by this point, Jesus has healed dozens and dozens of people. Perhaps Levi knew one of them and it had made an impact. Again, we're just speculating. Whatever the case, that day when Jesus interrupted Levi's workday, right in the middle of it, just another day like any other, Jesus walks up, has a two-word command, and in this, two things become immediately evident. First, it's clear that somewhere along the way, faith in Jesus had been stirred within Levi's heart. We don't know when or where, but somewhere along the line, faith had been stirred. The second thing that is evident is that Levi understood the implications of Jesus' call to follow him. There, there, was no, there was no misunderstanding of what Jesus' call meant for him in that moment. This is clear. That the moment he were to leave his tax booth, the moment he were to leave his money and his contract and his books and his soldiers and his Roman protection behind, he knew that that very moment his old life would be over. His old life was done and finished. And so in that moment, whatever Levi's inner thoughts were, whatever was going through his mind and heart, we don't know. All we know is what Levi does next. And Mark tells us in straightforward language, as we see depicted in this next slide. As shocking as Jesus' call to Levi must have been to the crowd that day, it was even more shocking as we read in verse 14, and Levi got up and followed him. Just like that, he got up, he left it all behind, and he started 
following. Without any questions, without any gathering up shekels or tidying up his books, Levi's days as a tax collector were over. Elsewhere in the parallel account in Luke 9.62, Jesus said, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Now from all accounts, Levi left his tax booth and never looked back. He put his hand to the plow and he never once looked over his shoulder. For putting feet to his faith, he got up, he left it behind, and he followed Jesus from that day forward and for the rest of his life. So here's a soul-searching question for us to ponder today. What have you left behind in order to follow Jesus? What have you left behind in order to follow Jesus? Perhaps right now you recognize that there is something in your life, something that you're still holding on to, something that is holding you back. But you see, just as Levi couldn't follow Jesus while remaining at his tax collection booth, neither can we follow Jesus and continue to hold on to our old life and our old sins and its many trappings. It is a present imperative. Follow me. Leave it behind. So let me ask, is there something that you recognize even now that you need to leave behind. That the Spirit is saying, this is it. And he's putting a spotlight on it right now. This has to go. This has to be left behind. Is there something you need to leave behind so that you can truly and fully follow Jesus? The missionary, Jim Elliot, is famous for saying, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. So if there is anything in your life that you need to give up and leave behind in order to follow Jesus, remember that whatever you're giving up, whatever it feels like you're losing, that's nothing in comparison to what you are gaining in Christ. As Paul wrote in Philippians 3, 7, and 8, But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things, I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ. So now for Levi, having responded to Jesus' life-changing call to follow him, his new life has just begun. And so what was the very first thing that Levi decides to do with his new life? Well, in this next slide, we see that he decides to throw a dinner party. And he decides that he's going to host Jesus and he's going to invite all of his former tax-collecting colleagues to come and meet him as well. Verse 15. And as Jesus reclined at the table in Levi's house, many tax-collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. Now this word recline is used twice in this verse. It refers to the practice of lying on one side, reclining, leaning up on your elbow with your head by the table, which was the custom of how they ate in those days. It was a very relaxed posture, one where people would be settled in for the long haul, for a relaxed meal in a time of fellowship. Also, the phrase in this verse, at the table, or at table, is a term of identification and friendship. 
For in that culture, when you had a meal with someone, when you were at table with them, you were saying, I accept you and I identify with you. We are in fellowship with each other. And so to eat from the same loaf of bread was to join yourself to the person you're eating with, saying, we we are the same. And so now, according to the Jewish laws and customs, this scene would never happen between a religious person and a sinner. Never. Because it would defile themselves by entering, first of all, a tax collector's house, let alone eating a meal together with him, sharing bread with them. It would never happen. And yet, once more, just as Jesus had previously smashed through the religious laws and customs of his day by reaching out and touching a man with leprosy, he does so once once again here, reclining at Levi's dinner table, a tax collector's house, And not just with one tax collector, but with other tax collectors who have not yet left their professions. These are still the scum of the earth. These are still the worst of the worst. All of these things still apply to them, and yet here is Jesus at the table with them. It's shocking, especially to the religious leaders, as we'll see in this next slide. For they, the Pharisees, were always watching Jesus' every move critically. Verse 16 says, When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now, this is the very first time that Mark specifically mentions the Pharisees by name. They were most known for attempting to rigidly obey the Mosaic law to the very letter. But their primary problem was that they solely focused on the outward appearance of things. This was their specialty. They focused on the outer circumstances and the outer appearances while completely neglecting the spiritual matters of the heart. But in their minds, the Pharisees, they had reached a place where they were better and more righteous than everyone else. And so they thought it was their right and, in fact, their duty to establish and strictly enforce this religious hierarchy where they were at the very top of the heap, and that they would make sure that everyone else beneath them would follow the rules as they laid them out for them. Because remember, they didn't just have, you know, the Ten Commandments. They added to them hundreds and hundreds of extra laws, additionary laws that they would make up to say, well, these support the core keeping of God's law. And so they piled on, and they piled on extra rules and regulations. And they, of course, were the enforcers. And so remember, they saw themselves at the very top of the heap and the lowly tax collectors and sinners at the very bottom. And so it truly, it truly aggravated and galled them that Jesus, an undeniable miracle worker and a respected rabbi that the people were flocking to, it galled them that he would so closely fraternize, let alone spend time eating together with lowly Sinners, scum of the earth tax collectors. It galled them. And of this, Pastor John MacArthur writes, the religious hated Jesus for condemning good people, and they hated him for forgiving bad people. In looking down on those obvious sinners, what the Pharisees failed to see was that while they looked good on the outside, they had their robes of righteousness and their, all, of, all of the things decked out on the outside. What they failed to see 
was that on the inside, they were just as sinful, if not worse, than those who they considered the scum of the earth. This reminds me of a story about a young couple that had just moved into a new neighborhood. The next morning, while they were eating breakfast, the young woman saw her neighbor hanging the wash outside, out on the line, back when people still did this. And the wife looked out through the window at the wash on the line, and she says, that laundry's not very clean. She must not know how to wash correctly. Perhaps she needs better laundry soap. Well, her husband glanced out the window, but remained silent. And so from that day forward, every time the neighbor would hang her wash out on the line to dry, the wife would again make some sort of disparaging comment about it not being very clean. About a month of this passed, and finally the woman one day looked out her window and was quite surprised to see out on the line perfectly lily-white laundry. And she said to her husband, Look, she's finally learned how to wash correctly. I wonder who taught her how to do it. To which her husband simply replied, I got up early this morning and I cleaned our windows. Clearly the Pharisees were oblivious to the fact that they had some very dirty windows. In reply to their question, Jesus replies in Mark 2 verse 17, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So I asked it at the outset of this sermon, and I'm going to ask it again. Who needs a doctor? Who needs a doctor, the healthy or the sick? Who needs Jesus? Is it those who think that they are righteous, or those who know that they are sinners? Here Jesus clarifies that he has not come to polish the halos or pat the backs of those who thought that they were already good enough for God by their own merit. But rather, Jesus has gone to those who already knew that they were sick with sin and needed a doctor. And so Jesus went to the scum of the earth because they knew they needed him. The Apostle Paul captured the essence of this in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. He writes... The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. The Apostle Paul, a Pharisee of Pharisees, he recognized that he was the chief of sinners and that Christ had come into the world to save him. So who needs a doctor? Levi did, and he knew it. The Pharisees did, but they didn't know it. Paul, thankfully, did, and by encountering Christ on the road, he recognized his sin, and he turned to Christ. Who else needs a doctor? Well, you do, I do, the people down the street and around the corner do too. We all need Jesus, the great physician. So may we hear his call to follow him, and may we respond like Levi did. May we leave it all behind, whatever we need to leave behind, in order to follow Christ. And may we then, like Levi, be quick to invite others to meet Jesus as well. And may we never look down on those lowly sinners, as the Pharisees did. For it is they that Jesus came to seek and to save, just as certainly as he came to seek and to save you and I.
Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you came for lowly sinners like us. We thank you that you came to seek and to save that which was lost. And you showed it again and again, just as you did with Levi. That while the world had already written him off, labeled him the scum of the earth, you looked past all of that, you looked into his heart, you saw his potential, and you called him to follow me. And we thank you that you had already been stirring and working in Levi's heart, that in that moment he was ready to put his faith into action, to get up and to follow you. And the world is better because of it. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, that that call extends to each one of us today. Follow me. It's so simple, two words, and yet it challenges us to the core. It confronts everything about our lives and all that we hold dear. And so, Lord, this morning as we are challenged, if there is something in our lives that we are holding on to that's holding us back from following you, we pray, Holy Spirit, would you give us even now the power and the desire to let it go, to fully follow you in faith, wherever you lead us, whatever you call us to. For your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.